the most important thing is to be true to yourself. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. Women's rights are human rights once and for all. We realize the importance of light when we see darkness. America's women are tired of hearing that pay inequality isn't real. Women around the world are not yet always taught by their immediate environment that they are strong, powerful, beautiful, and equal. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Hey, Riveters! It's your friend, Buffy. And it's your friend, Sally. Yay, Sally! Yay, Buffy! Um, <laughs> so, Sally, I am literally across the street from the California Democratic Party convention right now. Um, I'm recording in my car in the sunshine <laughs> in Sacramento. Um <laughs> So I was rushing to get over here to record, and because um, it's the convention right now, where they're selecting a new state party chair um, this weekend, and I had to pump really bad, so I just went into the bathroom and pumped, and it was like the most public of all public bathrooms in America, <laughs> lines of women, and I'm just like waving. I've got like the like little flange thing sticking out of my uh, bra, just like making JoJo's dinner for tonight. Uh, anyways, it was all all of the glamour and romance of being a mom. Well, well, you you wear it well. You wear it well. Thanks. Thanks. I, I, I wear my pumping bra well. <laughs> <laughs> I've, you know, I watched you pump once. It was just fascinating. It's If you haven't seen some of them, it's like, it's it's a little trippy. It's a little weird. But, you know, hey, you do what you do, right? I mean, I, it wasn't weird at all to stare at your nipples I don't and watch milk <laughs> spurt out from them. I don't know what you're talking totally. about. Totally, <laughs> totally. Normal day. Um, so, Sally, I know that you um, have had a real unfortunate um, situation happen in your personal life, um, which to me really um, underscores the importance of what elections are all about. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to know if you'd be willing to talk about that on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Um, I am definitely willing to talk about it. Uh, my sister-in-law is from Mexico City. Her entire family is from Mexico. They live in Houston. They are all legal residents. And her 64-year-old father was picked up this week by ICE. Um, they came to his house at 7 a.m. They rolled very deep with many SUVs with sirens blaring. Um, they they stormed into his home um, it was absolutely horrifying. His wife is mostly blind. He cares for her. They don't speak a ton of English, but they do speak some English. And they took him. They just took him away. And he's a legal resident. We're trying to figure out what happened. Thank God I have such an amazing network of people. I have to give a really big shout out to all the people. I had more than 50 people contact me from one Facebook post where I said, you know, we really need some help. We're terrified. We don't know what to do. Even I didn't know what to do. And I feel like I'm pretty well versed in this stuff. Right. Because when you when it happens to you and your family, you just kind of freak out, you know, and you forget. Of course. <laughs> you forget what you know. And so so many people helped me. And somebody um actually my friend Milton in, in New York, he contacted this woman. Becca Heller, who is a total badass. He had just seen an article about her in the New York Times. She worked on this stuff. He found her phone number, called her, said, my friend needs help. And she called me right away. I mean, within five minutes. Um, wow. And then we got the, our family on the phone and she found us a pro bono attorney in Houston. I mean, she's incredible. So thank you for restoring my faith in humanity. Everybody but ICE and Trump and his supporters. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, to the larger point of what the resistance has meant for a lot of us in that um, as these 
tragedies and uh, tragedies that are, that are the Trump administration and his public policies have unfolded into our daily lives and we've become in contact with them. The f- converse of that is that there are people that are rising up and they're speaking out and they're yeah. using their tools in their toolbox and they're using their, whether it's legal press, you know, financial resources to help people who have been hit hardest. Um, that is the one like I think silver lining and all of the stuff that's happening right now, to your point that like people are rising up and um, they're taking action and they're caring. Um, and my hope is that, um, you know, as situations like this unfold in people's daily life, um, that a, they will stop eventually because we will uh, have a new president, but that people will continue this like really inspiring sense of civic engagement that's going on right now. Absolutely. And I know we wanted to talk today about how everybody can plan for their part in the resistance. Yeah. And my, you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit before. I've certainly talked about it with um, friends, colleagues, family members. For me, I think one of the most important things that we can do is all of this energy, all of the marches and the protests and demonstrations, um, the the civic engagement, we have to translate that towards electoral engagement and electoral Absolutely. power. Yep. And there's, you know, obviously we just had Kelly Ward on to talk about redistricting. So there's a bunch of stuff happening at the state level with regard to that. There are a bunch of um, House races um, that are going to be targeted this year. There are a bunch of Senate races, sorry, 2018. There are a bunch of Senate races. There are gubernatorial races. Every Anywhere you live in the country right now, there's a race with your name on it, right? right. Um, and, you know, there's a great organization I, I've advised a little bit, uh, Swing Left. They do really, really good work. Um, they basically um, find a targeted uh, congressional district in your area. Um, you can sign up to volunteer. You can kind of adopt that congressional district. And what that means is you can help fundraise for that Democratic candidate. You can go volunteer. You can phone bank. You can really get to know that district and kind of really just adopt that district and pour your heart and soul into that um, into that work. Um, but I think it's really, really critical that folks who are doing all this amazing activism um, pivot towards the electoral piece when the time is right. And those races are starting to happen today. Yeah. Um, a lot of these places have candidates. They're trying to raise money. Um, and so even if you don't live in an area that's sort of a swing area, you can raise money. Even if you get together 10 friends to each give $100, that's $1,000 right. um, that those candidates need. That's so, math. Um, that's just math. That, that, that is just math. <laughs> and it's not my specialty, but I just killed that equation. Okay. I mean, as a woman, I'm just shocked. <laughs> Shocked. I didn't, I barely understood what you're saying. It was like numbers, numbers. Uh, Totally, totally. So um, what are there other, what else is out there? Yeah. So we want you, you guys, our listeners uh, to, you know, rivetize your lives. And so get your pens out. We're going to give you some practical tips on getting involved. Buffy has already mentioned Swing Left. Go to their website. You're going to want to sign up for election reminders from Rock the Vote, because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I will hear about an election that's a special election or, um, you know, a local election I didn't know about, and it will be the day of, and I have to like drop everything I, I have going on to go to the polls. And I, so I went to rock the vote. I signed up for their, for their, um, reminders for all of the upcoming elections in your area. You can also put in your zip code on rockthevote.com and um, find out who your representatives are. Although there are a lot of sites for this, I will say, we want you guys to get involved in a meaningfully in a meaningful way and at least one group in your area uh buffy you talked to alicia garza one of the founders of black lives matter and they have local chapters right yeah yeah and they're doing amazing work obviously on a very very critical issue and 
Um, we're going to hear from her here in a minute. Um, it's a, it's just, I think it's one of the most important um, issues our society is facing in terms of the inequality and challenges. And quite frankly, the death toll that young right. black men in particular um, are confronted with. Um, so, but they do a lot of great activism. Um, she's an amazing young dynamic woman who talk about like a badass who has her shit together. She's incredibly impressive. Man, I, I aim to be a badass with my shit together. <laughs> I know, usually, <laughs> <don't we> all? <laughs> usually I'm half of both of those things. I should say that like we don't expect everybody to do everything that I'm saying, but pick a few things and go with it. Right. Pick um, what you're most comfortable you know with, this? like what you have time for and jump in. Do you Are you aware of the safety pin box? I think we might have mentioned it before, but I'm so obsessed with it. I know. I know. Yeah. Talk about that. Okay, so it was started by a few women, a few black women who after the election, you know, they were seeing people wearing safety pins and it was supposed to signify that you were a safe person or you would step in if there was a hate crime of some sort. But it was seen by so a lot of people as a shallow gesture of support and really about the person who was wearing it, like sort of bragging that they're part of this right. rather than being a meaningful ally or whatever term you want to use. So they started a for-profit business and all of the proceeds go to um, organizations led by and, and projects led by black women um, d- doing amazing stuff on social justice. Uh, and they give you meaningful tasks and information. It's like if you were going to sign up for um, like those beauty boxes that come once a month, right? That's what this is in a digital form. Um, And I think sometimes in an actual physical form in your, in your, um, in the mail and they have boxes for individuals, groups, teens, kids, get the whole family involved in um, being a meaningful ally and being, you know, standing up in a true way for racial justice. So I love it. So, so, so much. That's great. Well, that's a good way to tee off um, our next guest, which I'm so excited. We've wanted to get Alicia on the podcast literally since day one. Um, between her schedule, our schedules, it just took forever. But we, I finally sat down with her in Oakland recently. Um, she's a powerhouse. So uh, without further ado, Sally, let's go yeah, get to Alicia, Alicia Garza. Love it. Yay. Thanks. This season of The Riveters is brought to you by Amalgamated Bank. Not all banks are created equal. Not all banks invest in progressive causes. Not all banks champion women's rights, workers' rights, and immigrants' rights. Not all banks are committed to a greener, more sustainable planet. Not all banks seek true financial opportunity for all. But this one does. Amalgamated Bank, the bank of the progressive community. Move your money to Amalgamated. To learn more, visit amalgamatedbank.com forward slash riveters. Member FDIC. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on. I've been like dying just for our listeners. I've been literally trying to get you on since like day one. You're like one of the first people. And between your schedule and mine, uh, it's been difficult. But here we are. We made it. In Oakland. Um, And I'm excited to have you on because a lot of my, our our listeners, Riveters, um, are white women Mm -hmm. who are progressive. And I think a lot of white women tend to struggle with how to talk about race, how to be allies. And I think many of them have, myself included, you know, have good intentions and want to be there, but it's like how to do it. Mm -hmm. How do you talk about it? Especially you don't want to say something that's inappropriate or you don't want to offend anyone. And so I... I think white women have these conversations, at least in the progressive community, mm-hmm. like how can we be there mm-hmm. in a way that is authentic and true and real? Yeah. You know, I think it's it's easy for us to kind of talk about 
a set of problems that face people of color or women of color or whomever um, as separate from things that are problems that face us because we may not identify in that way. Yeah. Um, but I would argue actually that um, a lot of the same issues that women of color are facing, that people of color are facing, are um, related to issues that white folks are facing. Yeah. And that part of um, what allows for us to kind of be in these separate camps is a lack of recognition that those things are really intertwined. Yeah. So um, I don't think fighting racism from the perspective of a white person is from an ally perspective as more as much as it is from a perspective of I want to live a different life. Yeah. I don't want to live a life where people live uh, stratified, don't have access to the things that they need. Um, that impacts so me. That impacts me. Right. These are problems that all of us are impacted by. Yeah. We're just impacted differently. Right. Right. And so um, I know for myself, I tend to act out of self-interest. Yeah. Right. I act from things that I know impact me, that I care about. And I'm less likely, right, to be effective when I'm doing something in support of someone else that I don't feel some personal relationship and connection to. Totally. And so um, one big thing I think is really important in kind of um, taking on these problems head on is not being afraid of making mistakes. Right. Um, and I think the idea that we could offend somebody, hurt somebody, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, use the wrong pronoun, you know, say African-American instead of black, which is, you know, the Thing of mine, an issue that I have, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, prevents people from actually taking action. I and think that's, that's totally something true. that I really worry about. So yeah. I'm like, you're going to fuck up. Sorry. Right, 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 right. You know, totally. You will. It's a guarantee. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Welcome to life and like social right. movements. Like, exactly. yeah, totally. So let's start there. The, yeah. the idea that um, uh, being an ally or fighting against racism means that you have to do it perfectly, I think is something to get rid of right yeah. off the jump. Um, the second thing that I feel is really important is to um, do your part to make this a conversation that's out in the open. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times um, when we talk about racism, we do it in kind of hush yep. tones. Yep. Um, and that's a lot of how it's able to survive. Yep. So in a post-racial society where everything and nothing is about race, um, bringing to the forefront the ways that race impacts every aspect of our lives is really important so that people actually see it. Because most people um, who are not directly impacted by racism, the reason that folks, some folks are allowed to walk through the world kind of ignorant is because we do a lot of work to hide it. Yeah. Um, so bringing it out into the open is a good thing. Yeah. And, and, and so like tangible ways to do that. Yep. Tangible ways to do that. What are some examples? Well, I think having a conversation with your family and friends about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And watching what happens with people. Yeah. Right? Most yeah. of the time people will say things like, oh, I'm uncomfortable because it's so decentralized or, oh, I'm uncomfortable because it's this. But actually what makes people uncomfortable is that we are explicitly and unapologetically fighting for the lives of black people. Yeah. And that brings up stuff in people. Well, why is it just black people? Why is it not totally. all people? All lives matter, you know, right, all this stuff. Right. Um, and then of course, also it always gets into the question of policing and law enforcement. Right. And um, these are things that we really need to unearth in order to do something about them. Yeah. Um, so if we still harbor these ideas that there are some bad apples but generally people are doing the right thing. Um, if we still as ascribe to the notion that 
um, that the only people who come into contact with police in a negative way are people who are committing crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And or if we refuse to acknowledge the ways in which racial disparities play out and every level of law enforcement. And yep. even law enforcement officers will tell you this. Right, right, right. They'll say people of color are overrepresented in our stops, in our um, in our arrests, in how many people are sitting in cages, right? It's right. mostly people of color. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that, that's a fact. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. an obvious thing. Um, so the awareness piece I start with in particular, because I think if we don't have a shared assessment of what the problem is, we can't actually deal with the problem. Right. We can't have the conversation if we don't, if we're not operating from the same understanding of what the problem is. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in college, I um, one of the best experiences I had was interning at the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And I did all the police misconduct stuff. And mm-hmm. I worked the complaint line, mm-hmm. which was like a very real awakening for me in terms of like, I was the first person people would call. Yeah. And then we'd figure out kind of what we could do. Yeah. And, you know, this was right after, I'm going to age myself here, but um, Rodney King. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, okay. And yeah. I'm, you know, I think back to those experiences and they are all still exist now. Yeah. Right. Yep. And now I think we're seeing them more because of the iPhone and yep. people are capturing that on video. Yep. But the truth of the matter is this stuff has been going on for a very, very long time. Yep. Um, and it continues to go on, you know, and I think from just, I'm curious about from your perspective as someone who is very much at the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. um, in a time where this issue is so magnified in the press, yep. Um, and in a way, which is good because there's an awareness around what's been actually have been going on for years and years and years. But it's an, a very it's a very emotional issue. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you personally deal with the emotion around seeing mostly black men being killed by police, mostly unjust, right? Mm-hmm. How do you do you personally just deal with the emotion around that? You so I get start- really excited about um, alternatives to incarceration because I think, uh, stopping the pipeline <laughs> of Black people into prisons and jails and other kinds of uh, state surveillance is really important to break this cycle of hyper-incarceration. There's something about envisioning alternatives that is my resilience, mm-hmm. right? So my partner works at an organization called the Community Justice Network for Youth, and they're a project of the Haywood Burns Institute. And basically what they do is they work with jurisdictions, system stakeholders, and community groups to keep young people of color out of prisons and jails. I think that's dope. And part of how they do that is that the community groups become the alternatives to somebody being in contact with the criminal justice system, which Mm -hmm. as you and I both know, um, can impact your life chances from that moment Mm -hmm. forward. Um, and then depending on a whole bunch of other factors, including class and geography, et cetera, um, you can either get stuck in the tumbleweed of the system or um, as often happens with, you know, folks with more privilege, you get you get like an exit route mm-hmm. outside of it. Um, I grew up in Marin County, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just as much crime happening in Marin County, but it's not all being policed in the same way. Right. Um, and so, you know, a kid that gets cut drunk driving who maybe even hurts somebody, right, um, tends to get an exit door out if they're white yep. and if their parents are wealthy yep. or if they themselves have some kind of wealth. Yep. And if they live in a zip code, right, that is also wealthy. Um, whereas a kid of color who did the exact same thing, but they're from a geography that's less wealthy, that may um, have higher incidences of police contact, um, 
uh, doesn't get that exit door. Yeah. Right. And yeah. in fact, they keep going farther and farther into the system. And so it um, it's helpful for me and energizing for me to spend time thinking about what are the alternatives. Right. Because without that, it's just like such a beast. It's a lot. Right. Yeah. And, and it's been happening for a long time. time. Right. Um, the second thing that is really helpful for me, um, quite honestly, is being in community. So part of what is hard about movement work, I think, is that um, it can be isolating. Yeah. Right. And this idea that we all carry the weight of the world on our shoulders alone is overwhelming and it's yeah. apt to just kind of make you either disengage. Yep. Right. Or get burnt out. Yep. So, um, you know, realizing that this isn't something I have to fix on my own. Totally. Um, and that there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are trying to figure out this thing yeah. um, is heartening to It's me. uplifting. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit to origins. Yeah. Um, you're from Marin. Uh-huh. What are your parents like? And what was your like? Cool. What was your childhood like? It was really interesting. I was a weird kid. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally a weird kid. Um, you could just, I, it's, I was kind of like the black Punky Brewster. Yeah. It's like if you mixed <laughs> Punky amazing. Brewster with like Penny from Inspector Gadget, that's kind of me. That is amazing. <laughs> that is like the best description anyone has ever given me. Yeah. <laughs> like I was um, four years old and completely obsessed with Prince and knew like that's every. Amazing line in Purple Rain because yes it's the best movie of all time um and um for the first part of my life I grew up with a single mom who worked a lot and um which meant I had to be super independent yeah and then um when my mom married um we lived in a pretty blended family so my dad is fourth generation San Franciscan from a white Jewish family who, you know, had access to wealth. And my mom is from a working class family in Toledo, Ohio. And so yeah. you can imagine what the combination of those How two families was like. Um, they met actually in a nail salon. My mom was doing my dad's mom's nails. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's a very American story. Very. Yeah. Speaking of origins, Black Lives Matter, how it started. Yeah. Quick story. I mean, we've talked and written about this a ton of places, but Black Lives Matter really started off as a love letter to Black people in a moment where um, I think all of us were reeling from the decision um, in the George Zimmerman trial where he was acquitted on all charges of killing a kid. Um, and, you know, for me, as much as I know about the way that the criminal justice system works or doesn't work as the case may be. Um, I was pretty confident that Zimmerman was going to get some kind of charges, mm -hmm. um, that some of those charges would stick. And so I was so shocked and enraged when not only did none of the charges stick, but he was completely acquitted. <laughs> um, that it made me feel more unsafe than I think I've ever felt. Mm -hmm. Because how I interpreted that decision was, it is actually okay for you to kill black people if you feel afraid. And it, black folks don't have to be doing anything to give you that justifiable fear, except just being black, right? Yeah. And so that decision, I feel like, was precedent setting in a lot of ways. Um, and it also highlighted all of the ways in which we um, 
protect some people at the expense of others, yeah. right? So people like to say, oh, that only happens in Southern places or places like Florida. And it's like, no, California has King of the Castle laws, which are right. exactly the same as stand your ground laws. Um, that night when I heard the decision and I was with friends and I went home and I literally sat up in bed and cried. You know, I have a brother who's eight years younger than me and he um, lives in Marin County mm-hmm. and, you know, doesn't have an idea of himself as black. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. he's just living life, which is how most of us want to be. Yeah. Right. And um, but unfortunately, what that means is I fear that he doesn't have a sense of how to protect himself yeah. or to understand when somebody's afraid of you yeah. and why they're afraid of you, yeah. even if you're not doing anything, mm-hmm. right? The way that I processed that was writing a love letter to Black people who I knew. Um, I imagined there were people all over the world doing exactly what I was doing, Yeah, sitting up and worrying about what if I'm next? What if my family member is next? What if my partner's next? What if somebody I love is next, right? Um, Patrice put a hashtag in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Patrice and Opal and I, Opal really helped to create um, lots of the tech tools that we use mm-hmm. to um, provide a platform for people who were trying to figure out how to get involved yeah. um, and who were doing a lot of things online. And our thing was, how do we take this energy that people are um that people are expending online and translate that into energy that people do in their communities. So we created platforms for people to dream Mm -hmm. and to grieve and to connect with each other. And then um, the killings didn't stop, right? So Mike Brown was killed not too long later. And um, the community of Ferguson really, I think, captured people's imaginations because they were so courageously willing to stand up and fight mm-hmm. and they received such an immediate blowback that they then courageously pushed back against and continue to do to this day yeah you know it's not safe to be black in america yeah. it's not safe to be black and resisting in america it's not safe to be black and fighting for a better america it's not safe to be black and not doing any of those things right, right? and so that is the origin story of Black Lives Matter. It is about a call to action, mm-hmm. and it is also um, a proactive response to um, the ways in which anti-Black racism and violence that's sanctioned by our government um, it plays out in our lives and the impacts that it has on our fundamental sense of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those are the origins of, of Black Lives Matter as a network. Right, And then, um, I think protesters in Ferguson taking the phrase Black Lives Matter in their protests and demonstrations as their um, fight back was being broadcast on major television stations all over the world, right? Really catapulted Black Lives Matter um, into the movement that you see today. Um, And we didn't start off thinking we're creating a movement, right? Right, right. And we certainly didn't think to ourselves, well, let's link up with the people from Ferguson, right? Like we weren't trying to figure out how to make Black Lives Matter a thing. We were trying to figure out how to make Black people a community that could depend on each other um, in a world that hates Black people. Mm-hmm. That is pretty powerful. And, it, and it's turned into a movement. 
Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your um, take on the resistance movement, because mm -hmm. in a way I feel like Black people have been resisting for a long time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you're like, welcome to the party, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and I was I was reading about how you debated at first if you should go to the Women's March. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that mm -hmm. and if at all the Black Lives Matter has changed at all in the Trump era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with the Women's March thing. The Trump thing is a bigger question. Um, I think those of us who are trying to create a positive change in this world struggle with cynicism all the mm -hmm. time. And movement making is really messy and um, it's painful. It's not all like we all get along and, you know, <laughs> even if we want to do different things, we have each other's back. It's actually not like that. And it should be, but we're not there yet. Um, and so, you know, that debate that I was having both inside my organization and, and with myself was like partially like, here we go again, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I watched um, in this election cycle, uh, this last most recent election cycle, there were so many places of disappointment. Mm -hmm. um, and one of which was seeing people do this thing where it was like, we're rallying around this woman and now let's talk about the wage gaps and let's talk about this and let's talk about that. And women of color, and poor women and low-income women, trans women, completely left out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we've done this over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, that's why you have all these different waves of feminism, right? Because supposedly with every wave, right. you're getting bigger and right. you're getting more powerful because you're getting sharper and clearer about what you're fighting for. Yeah. Um, but this last election cycle, I have to say, really impacted me. Mm -hmm. um, it impacted me on a whole bunch of levels, one of which, you know, we struggled, I think, as a network to figure out how we were going to be involved and how involved we were going to be. And, you know, our first kind of um, attempt to kind of be actively engaged was totally brushed off. Like mm -hmm. we were like, hey you should have a debate about issues important to Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. right? Um, we want to hear presidential candidates um, or presidential hopefuls talk about their plan and their vision for making sure that Black lives are protected in this country. And not only did we get like a half-ass response, but we were told that that just not, was not possible. So you asked the candidates to participate in a debate? Oh, dude, we asked the DNC to sponsor a debate that was about issues important to black lives. And it was like, right. And I still have the response. Wow. Right. Um, of course we get completely chastised for not stumping for any of the candidates and interrupting them. And it's like, dude, let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation about what are you doing to engage people who are in the streets, people who are genuinely and legitimately concerned yeah. about what's happening in our communities and quite frankly, don't want to sit at tables with you anymore mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you're not saying anything new and you're certainly not doing anything new. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're not here for photo ops like and we're not here to be popular with you. We're here to change stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of thing can make you really cynical. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not somebody who for whom Black Lives Matter is my first kind of rodeo. I've been mm -hmm. organizing for like 20 years. Yeah. So um, I understand that it's a long game and I understand the whole thing about 
politics and what's politically possible. And I think um, there's a lot of hard work involved in making the impossible possible, knowing that what's politically possible only comes about because of really smart and strategic right. organizing. Right, and you right. and you have to have those outside agitators. Exactly. That is the role of organizers. That is the role of activists. You is need to provide, all of it. Right, exactly. you need it, you know, totally. Exactly, and so, um, when the Women's March rolled around, I mean, I was like coming out of a deep depression about the election. Mm -hmm. um, not because, uh, I mean, Donald Trump winning like totally sucks. However, um, that one I saw coming. Um, what I didn't, wasn't fully able to wrap my head around was how legitimized the fringe of the Republican Party would become. Yeah. And I wasn't fully clear about all of these ideologues that came behind Trump. And from my kind of standpoint, I was like, oh, we're, we are in big trouble here. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, because they have been quietly building for yep. 30 years. Yep. And we've been squabbling over things that are yep. not totally relevant in that context. Yeah. Right? Um, and so the women's march rolls around and I'm like, oh, women are mad now. You know what I'm saying? Right. You're like, like thanks. Like, yeah. Why wasn't anybody mad? Four months ago, right, you know what I right, mean? Right. And mad enough to um, really push these people that we're rallying for to do more right, and to do better. Um, and at the same time, as somebody who works in a women's organization that's at the intersection of gender and the economy and race and class, I'm like, dude, we got to get out there. Yeah. But for me, the aftermath what was what was really troubling to me. I mean, I was there. I was in D.C. with a million plus women. And most of the people I saw were not the same people I've been doing this work with for 20 years, which is usually who I see in these yep. things. It was people who were like, I've never been to a march before. It was people who were like, my health care is at stake. My family's at stake. My kids are at stake. And that's why I'm out here. And I'm trying to figure out how to get involved. And I just thought to myself, this is an incredible opportunity. When does this happen? Yep. And then to hear people saying things like, oh, well, where have you been this whole time? It's like, okay, yeah. For those of us who've been in the trenches, yeah, it's exhausting and it's important to have more hands. But how do you get more hands when you tell people who offer their hand that you don't want their hand right. because they weren't here when you were here. Right. 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 <laughs> or they didn't come the way you wanted them to. Right. It's like, okay, but they're here. Right. So from a question or perspective of building power, if that's what you're trying to do, um, it seems to me that we have to think about what are ways to further bring folks in who maybe have been asleep this whole time. Right. Maybe they thought this is not about me. This is about other people. Maybe they thought I'm too busy to get involved in any of this stuff. Maybe they thought it was a luxury. Now it's not great. Right. Let's figure out a place to plug them in. Right, exactly. Um, and so that decision was really freeing for me. Yeah. Um, and the idea that cynicism is ultimately what starves movements of their potential. Yeah. Um, because the whole idea behind a movement is that it's bold and audacious and visionary and does all the things that people say could never be. Yeah. Um, and so if we cut ourselves off before we even get started, we're just really not going anywhere. Right. right. And I'm not breaking my neck to just be comfortable. Right. Like I want to win. Yeah. I want to win. Right. And I think everybody who was in those streets that day, they want to win too. Yeah. And so um, 
it doesn't mean there's not work to do to smash through barriers around race and class and gender. But if you don't engage people, it's just, it's not going to ever happen. Right. Right. So. Well, I'm glad you participated. I was stoked. Yeah. And really honored to be there. And um, we had a town hall meeting afterwards to try to capture some of those folks. Over a thousand people showed up. Trying to figure out how do we get involved. Yeah. What advice would you give your younger self? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, You're fantastic just the way you are. When I was a kid, I was painfully Mm self-conscious. When you were the black punky booster? Yeah, it was so weird. And luckily, I had a family who didn't try to like make me any different and um, gave me the space to like really just be me. Yeah. Um, Of course they had their own wants and desires, but I think they quickly learned that wasn't gonna work out. And so um, they just gave me a lot of room to be me. And now I have a partner that does the same thing. And when I look back at my 14 year old self who was painfully, you know, skinny because I wanted to be skinny like the other girls or, you know, wanted all the things that other people had. I just realized like I had everything I needed and nothing I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's takes a while to realize that though. Yeah. 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 You're so thoughtful. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And I want to have you back. Let's do it. There's like a thousand questions I didn't get to ask. Thank you so much for listening as always. Check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate and review us. And you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Riveters Pod. And of course, as always, I'd like to thank our amazing, wonderful staff, Casey Wolf, our executive producer, Sarah McKaney, who's our content director, Al Daniels, our sound engineer, and by the way, the only dude on our team, Emily Dalton-Niles, our digital director, Manisha Manaparuma, our web director, Hannah Cradock, our research director, and Lauren Thorbjornsson, our promotions director. Thanks again, everyone. Until next time.